You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Abrams, uh, I have a company called Media Visions, and uh, we're all about um, reimagining media projects. Uh, it's an interesting time because um, out of every great period of strife, which was certainly uh, evident in 2020, comes uh, brilliance in music, art, science, uh, film, and uh, we saw this coming out of World War II, coming out of the uh, Cold War, coming out of the late 60s, and certainly now. And um, my, my history is mostly based in, uh, in radio. I was a co-founder of XM Satellite Radio and uh, handled all the programming there. And prior to that was uh, really the first one to uh, introduce rock music on the FM band back in the late 60s. And uh, nowadays I'm working on really four projects. One is a complete reimagination. I'm in the reimagination business, incidentally. Uh, one is a, a complete reimagination of the live music experience. Uh, can't really get into a lot of detail on that right now, but it involves probably the greatest uh, special effects person in the history of film and an amazing artist. And we have a great team, and it's going to launch next year. Uh, also, a uh, Reinvention of news. Uh, television news is operating off some 1980s focus group hell and has very little relevance in 2021. And in my opinion, needs a complete blow up of the playbook, a rethinking. What would news look like if it had never been invented? What would it look like in 2021? It probably wouldn't be two chit-chatting anchors talking in front of a fake city skyline or uh, eight people on the screen yelling at each other. So a uh, reinvention of, uh, of video news, television news. Uh, a documentary which will focus on uh, the history of, well, the history of uh, music and culture from about 1950s onward as told through the uh, filter of radio. It's called Sonic Messengers, When Music and Radio Changed the World. And it's all about when radio was the soundtrack of America and traces it from the beginning of uh, Top 40 Radio in the middle 50s all the way up to the streaming era. And it's a story that's never been told, and that'll be ready next year. And, uh, of course, a new radio format, um, one which uh, sort of has the, um, the vibe of early FM, circa 1970, but is totally in, in, in the 21st century terms. And there's a few others that are baking in the lab, but those are the uh, four things I'm primarily focused on right now. Lee Abrams, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Great to be here. Really great to have you. And there's so much to dig into just in your intro alone. You have so much you're working on. I, I don't even think you you mentioned your book, your forthcoming book, Solutions for a Creatively Starved Planet, right. which is a wonderful title for someone who, like me, who... Uh, sort of describes themselves as creative and maybe even for this audience who I know are all creative. So, so much going on. I want to give the audience a deeper sense of who you are. So I'm going to read a little bit of a bio for you. And of okay. course, this is the internet. You can tell me if it's wrong and, and things need to be corrected. Uh, Lee Abrams is an American media executive who has held a number of posts for a large and for large and influential companies and is generally credited with developing the album-oriented rock format, first heard at WQDR Rally, and thereafter employed by hundreds of radio stations across the country, as well as co-founding, as you previously mentioned, XM Satellite Radio. Newsweek listed Abrams as one of their 100 cultural elite. He was cited by industry publication Radio Inc. as one of the 75 most important radio figures of all time. Abrams was introduced into the rock 
Radio Hall of Fame in the Legends of Rock Radio Programming category for his work with WRF in 2014. He has spent decades in the trenches reinventing radio, TV, news, and print. Has consulted over 1,000 radio stations, 12 major print publications, over 20 TV stations, and cable networks. You've developed several consumer products and is the designer of XM Radio Programming. My goodness, Lee, what a career. (laughs) And I want to take it from the beginning. Looks like maybe your first job was at WQAM Radio in Miami. Yeah, I was uh, a gopher. Well, I, uh, my family and I uh, used to take vacations down in Florida, and uh, this is in the middle 60s, and uh, I was enamored with the station. I thought it was just great. So I um, sent them a letter and said, hey, next time I'm in town, I would like to uh, meet with you guys. We met, hung out, uh, and, you know, the chemistry was great. And they hired me as a gopher uh, <laughs> to work summers. And uh, they paid me with the news tip of the week fund. They were 560 on the <laughs> dial. And every week uh, they would say, you know, when you see news happening, call the authorities. Then call WQAM. And the best news tip of the week uh, will win, you'll win $56. And so if there's no fire or no uh, you know, news event that people called in, I'd get paid. If there was yeah. some fire or something that people called in, I wouldn't get paid. So it was um, a labor of love more than uh, financial rewards. But it was a great experience, and it was a wonderful station, and that um, was a very influential time. Yeah, you mentioned just being enamored with the station. That sounds like an unusual thing to say about a radio station today, but take us to that place back then when, when radio was everything, what, what was your first interest in radio and why were you so enamored with it? Well, uh, it actually happened um, on, I remember the date, December 10th, 1962. Uh, my parents got a radio for Christmas, had no use for it, and asked if I wanted it. I said, sure. So um, set up the radio next to my bed and tuned around. And uh, the loudest station was WLS. And from the second I heard it, it was magic. Not only the music, but the magic between the songs, the jingles and the the disc jockeys. And it was just transporting. It was an unbelievable experience. And from that moment on, I just became addicted to it and music. But uh, radio is a vehicle uh, to present the music. It was uh, great. And I just just grew up with it. And uh, you know, got involved very deeply in my high school years. And then there's that WQAM and then uh, started a consulting company to launch this FM rock format. What would um, you have done if, if you didn't get that job in Miami, do you think? Oh, I think I still would have uh, followed the radio path uh, and uh, probably would have been with the same results. That was just a nice bonus. Perfect. And uh, if I wasn't in radio... I'd be in music. If I wasn't in music, I'd be in uh, probably an airline pilot. Yeah, it's true. You, you're a piano player and you're a pilot. You you have both of those skill sets. Yeah, yeah. Flying is a uh, wonderful passion I've been into for a long time. Yeah, for sure. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And man of my own heart with the piano playing, for sure. Uh, you have this quote. In mass terms, dumb stuff peaks fast. Smart stuff lasts. Elite stuff never gets off the ground. Why doesn't elite stuff get off the ground? Oh, it's uh, usually just too narrow um, to have any uh, any impact. And eventually it runs out of money or uh, just doesn't have enough connection with enough people to uh, to succeed. And there were, uh, these are radio, uh, music's a great example. There's some artists that are really good, uh, really amazing, but just can't connect with the public on uh, any kind of sizable uh, terms. So uh, it tends to just kind of fade away, unfortunately, but that's the reality. I wonder why the dumb stuff peaks fast too. Why, why, oh, do, we, why do we love dumb? 
That's one of the uh, problems with our country. I mean, I'm not worried about terrorists. I'm worried about stupidity. Uh, I mean, you know, you watch TikTok and it's just amazing. It's like low IQ theater. It's frightening. <laughs> uh, but the stuff does, you know, have instant traction. A lot of people get it. And uh, but it tends to peak fast. You know, you get bored with it. Sort of like boy bands. You know, they're they're popular while they're cute and uh, and have a lot of young teen followers. And then people just grow out of it. And uh, whereas you know the real smart things tend to have, if it's a music or artist, have long long careers. Or if it's a, even a film, you know, that's really intelligent. Right. Uh, but mass appeal intelligent that can, you know, just last forever. But dumb stuff, um, it's like candy. You know, it's a quick rush. And uh, and in the long run, it rots your teeth. But uh, right. it's fun in the short term. Yeah, there's a lot of films that I would say fit into that paradigm of being sort of unheralded early. But then are so smart, they have this incredible staying power and become almost cult classics favorites. I think like the Big Lebowski is one that comes right to mind. One that was basically a a box office flop, but has endured. I mean, there's uh, like Big Lebowski fan clubs. There's Big Lebowski Day. There's like like people people are gaining 20 pounds a year on on white Russians because of that movie. It's just, (laughs) you know, it's. Yeah, there are a lot of films and TV shows. I mean, uh, you know, it's 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 kind of a cliche of itself. But even Star Trek was a failure when it came out. And oh, then, I didn't know. That. Uh, yeah, it had no ratings. It was getting dropped. In fact, it did get dropped after a couple of years. Um, but uh, you know, obviously, has some staying power. And I, really? I think that about Kubrick films too. It's like uh, actually just watched um, Doctor Strangelove recently. It's just. Yeah. Uh, it holds up. <laughs> it holds up, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. His even his last film has has gotten a resurgence recently. Uh, Eyes wide shut. Yeah. And that that's become sort of a thing recently, uh, and a theme with other artists. Uh, I've I've noticed a Family Guy, another one canceled by Fox, oh. went to Adult Swim on Cartoon Network, got a following. They bought it back. Like, and the rest is the rest. Family is Guy's a great example. Yeah. I have spent the last week in the world of Lee Abrams, and it's a fascinating a fantasy land of of all sorts of uh, left turns and right turns, ups and downs, and and great quotes. And you have this mantra: "Make fans, not users." Can you tell us the difference? Because this is a very user centric zeitgeist we're in, a very user centric world we're in right now. Why do I need to make? a fan instead of a user can you tell me the difference and and how do you know as a creative that you have a fan and not a user on your hands well you can use radio as a great example one of their radio fm radio's big problems now is they have a lot of users but don't have fans uh back in the 70s and 80s even into the 90s they had fans you'd see when was the last time you saw a radio station bumper sticker on a car it used to be in every other car. When do you see people wearing a radio station T-shirt? So um, uh, users are uh, like the electric company. You're a user of that, but you're just not a fan. Uh, or, uh, you know, your cable company, you're probably a user. Are you really a fan of it? Not really. And what fandom does is, I mean, it's it gives you this invulnerability unless you really blow it. You, know, you got people hooked, and they'll stick with you for for as long as you keep going. Um, some bands are like that. Uh, most bands have uh, uh, you know cult followings of fans that know who the bass player is and uh, and just will travel two hundred miles to see him. A lot of bands just kind of have users, listeners. They like the song, but aren't, you know wouldn't probably go see him. So uh, it's just a different level, a higher level of engagement when somebody becomes a fan and it, um, again, it, it's so powerful and uh, radio is such a great example because they devolved into being from being very fan oriented where you were a fan of that station to being just a utility. Oh yeah. It's on somewhere on the dial here. Uh, so, you know, whenever we create a product, we keep fans in mind. Uh, we want to create fans and, you know, it's, um, it's not easy but uh, you have to be very authentic. You have to be brilliant, cutting edge, 
And um, we call it the uh, rock and roll thinking And when we create a product. It's that rock and roll as a medium and music might be kind of seen its best days. But as a style, uh, a way of thinking, it's timeless. You know, it's uh, So we want stations or stations, any project, to have the same kind of characteristics that the Beatles and Bob Dylan and, uh, you know, all these, Hendrix, all these timeless artists uh, have. And uh, you just sort of study what, what their aura was. And, um, you know, it's, they, they had a certain swagger, a certain uh, yeah. authenticity, originality, and that created fans. And that kind of thinking can be translated to media projects. It's an interesting paradigm. I, I, I kind of like this this idea of how do you extrapolate the charisma, the known sort of mojo of a Hendrix or of a of a uh, of anyone in rock. You know, you could think of that that sort of had that kind of gravitas. So even a John Lennon, uh, you could, which wouldn't be like hard rock uh, from the seventies, but just I think about. Like, how could you take that? Because, uh, and, and then and then apply it to a, a product. Um, well, um, some of the things, you know, I've, I've written down that our characteristics are uh, eccentricity. I call it eccentric all the way to the bank because mm-hmm. you can be eccentric to where, like, nobody gets it. Yeah. But eccentric. Innovation as a driver in everything you do. I mean, every time those artists... Um, for example, uh, produce something, they had innovation in mind. How can we take it to the next level? Maybe right. it's more tracks, whatever. Uh, swagger, you know, a certain sense of confidence that they may not be arrogant, but, you know, they, they got a, a vibe that's very swaggery. Um, reinvention, they have a desire and a motivation to do that. Um, they're always pushing forward. Um, artful. Um, they create commerce through great art. Uh, they never, you know, Hendrix never, I don't think, designed any music to be a hit single. They just created great art. It happened to be uh, be popular. Uh, not elitist, you know, for the masses, um, and unashamedly so. You know, so a lot of people to, to dig it. Rebellious, again, not in a necessarily in. A, in a military way, but just kind of that, that fighting spirit, intelligent, very important. All these artists, if we're using music example, had an intelligence to them, um, where you could, whether it was either musical in their playing or in their lyrics or something, there's something intelligent about it. And, uh, instinctive, uh, they just had instincts on what's next. They have the ability to peer over the, uh, over the horizon. And, uh, and we try to create cultures that have that in their DNA in all of our projects. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant idea. It's, it's, it's like Kurt Cobain would be almost, um, an enigma to, to that list because he would touch some of them and some of them would be, he wouldn't fit in because he wouldn't have wanted to, to be for the masses, for example. Um, but, but then not quite as gregarious and sort of, um, out there as like a Ozzy Osbourne would be like biting the head off a bat on stage. Yeah. It's, it's somewhere in the middle there, uh, that I think is great. And, and there is a, there is a great article by Kevin Kelly, uh, that came out in wired, I believe years ago called a thousand true fans. And we'll link to it in show notes. And it is, um, I think, the definitive piece on why you need a fan and not a user. Uh, yeah, really I love to see smart that. Piece. Yeah. yeah, really, really smart piece. Uh, another uh, quotable, Lee quotable, is information is the new rock and roll. And there's just something uh, sticky about that. You have a way of, of saying words that feel a little bit, controversial just in, in, in their statement. So, uh, with that in mind, um, information, I've always said that the lie you get told when you're young is education is power when information is really power. Yes. And, and so you talk about the difference between programming and content. Everybody wants you to make content today, uh, with information being the new rock and roll. Talk to us about programming and content in that, in that balance. Yeah. Um, 
far as that, that uh, saying, uh, it really deals with uh, the fact what's moving culture now is more information than music. Music really moved it in the past, and now it's more information driven. Instead of a um, stereo, you got a you know device, a uh, phone, which is just you know has so much information in it. That's what you go for. Right. But um, uh, what was the question again? Uh, do you want me to touch on? I forgot. Yeah, just programming and content. Oh yeah, because I know that you're big. Uh, you're 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 a big believer in content, not programming. Or no, do I have that backwards? Not programming, not content. Sorry, yes. Yes, uh, content just strikes me. It's a pet peeve more than anything. Just strikes me as a commodity. It's almost like when record companies used to call music product. Uh, <laughs> programming is an art form. This is where you really design things and put things together and then uh, paint a picture with it. Content is just like, here it is, it's a box and go for it. So uh, it really deals with the, uh, the artistic side of it. Uh, programming you know, is, is assembling something, is uh, manufacturing magic. Content is just, again, a commodity. It's something that uh, that's out there. And uh, usually one of the problems is it's not programmed. It's just kind of thrown out there and hope people like it. So that's, that's sort of that in a nutshell. Yeah, there's so many applications that applies to. The, what an oh, what 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 interesting way to put it, because... In your context, I think right away, okay, the DJ just gives you content. The program director gives you content in a curated way where it, it becomes more impactful to you. But then I think about in our industry, in film and and trying to be an indie creative, regardless of what your role is in independent film, because it's such a collaborative process, everyone has some lane they're trying to live in where people can get to know them a little better and understand what they do with their life. But if you're just throwing out, Hey, here's a picture of me at six flags. Uh, here's a picture of me eating a hot dog. Here's a picture of me taking a nap with my dog scooter. Uh, like that's just content where if you're programming it, they see very specific pictures of you doing very specific things over time. Exactly. Yep. And uh, powerful, yeah, yeah, right. And content again has just become this industry buzzword. We well, you know content is king, you know. Okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they all know revenue is king, really. Come on. <laughs> oh man, what's a what's a king to the god that is programming? All right. <laughs> uh you are an and, and this is, we're, we'll touch on this a little bit just to get, again, a little bit of a history lesson on, on Lee, the greatness of Lee Abrams. You are generally credited for developing album-oriented rock, as we mentioned before. Um, but for listeners that just may not know what that is, because this is something that happened in the late 60s, early 70s, late 70s, early 80s. Bring us back to that. Tell us what is album-oriented rock format okay well go back way back um back in the late 60s um am radio was dominant and there were all these big am radio stations uh playing all the hits and uh noticed a lot of people were what we call vulnerable top 40 listeners they listened to the big top 40 rock radio station but really liked only when the Stones would come on. Love that. Then the, the Carpenters and sort of Herb Albert would come on. Eh, not into that. Then the then uh, Hendrix would come on. Love that. And the point being, uh, they liked about a third of the music that was happening, which was part of this new underground. So we thought, well, what about if we took FM, which is wide open. It literally had Dennis office music and classical and no real <laughs> contemporary music going on. And uh, what if we took uh, all this great music that happens to be in stereo and put it on these channel on an FM station, but eliminated all the stuff they didn't like. And we did that. Uh, and the key was changing the familiarity factor from song title to artist. Mm -hmm. So uh, on a big top 40 station, big AM station, you knew every song. You could hum all the songs because they played them over and over again. With this format, uh, you knew every artist. But within that artist was a tremendous depth 
So we see the response of people listening to it and going, well, that's Santana, but wow, that's not Black Magic Woman again. And that's mm-hmm. Hendrix, but it's not Hey Joe again. That's the Moody Blues, but it's not Nights in White Satin again. So it had this tremendous familiarity because you knew who the artist was, but it also had depth. And uh, that was sort of the, the, the roots of it, uh, reaching out to these vulnerable top 40 listeners who were in huge numbers and they really didn't like what, what they were listening to. And then we offered them a, a higher fidelity stereo and all their favorite music without the clutter of the stuff they didn't like. And it just took off immediately. Um, and uh, it just dominated, mainly 18 to 34-year-olds. Um, and uh, we had that one success story in Raleigh, which went to number one in like 90 days. And again, it was a great college market, so that helped. But then um, it slowly spread to a station in New Orleans. And then we got one in uh, Pittsburgh, Kansas City. Next thing you know, we had hundreds of stations doing this. And... Uh, but a lot of revolutionary things about it. The main one was for the first time it was rock and roll on FM, which is right. you know FM, and a lot of broadcasters, particularly the old school types, said, "Oh, you know, FM is for classical and Montavani and the, you know the, the <laughs> schmaltzy music. You know, you can't put rock on FM. Well, it worked. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely worked, and." It's amazing the impact that one move had on the industry. And we'll talk about that a little bit going forward. But um, how did AOR format affect Payola? You know, it was amazingly uh, not part of the Payola movement. Uh, Payola had always been a very top 40 sort of thing, uh, or CHR as it's now called, which are the hit singles. Uh, the payola in uh, in uh, FM FM rock AOR whatever album rock um, tended not to be direct payments. In other words, uh, in top forty, you know, here's a here's a new so and so record, and if you look inside, you'll see a hundred dollar bill. Or <laughs> here's a trip to Vegas, you got to play my new so and so record. Uh, in album rock FM, it was always the record companies provided drugs mm. uh when you had a meeting this was back in the 70s it was common procedure standard procedure that you lay out a couple lines of coke <laughs> when the record company came by and it wasn't in, in return for anything it was just you know the way you do business yeah. or if you if they took you out to dinner you need know, to smoke a lot of joints uh provided by the record company. But it was never really payola in that there was a payback expected. It was just social. Uh, whereas in top 40 radio, it was blatant. Uh, yeah. but never really, uh, we're never really uh, part of that payola movement, even there's to this day. There's a great show on Showtime called Black Monday. It has Don Cheadle in it and uh, Regina Hall and a bunch of other people. But uh, there's a scene where they're at a record label party in, in the late 80s and uh, the waiters, instead of carrying around hors d'oeuvres and, and finger foods, they just have a tray of cocaine. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, when disco was popular, that was then cocaine went crazy. It was yeah. uh, it fueled the whole disco industry. But um, yeah, that's not too far off. That's feasible. <laughs> I love it. The, well, I want to talk a little bit about disco and just R&B and the impact and uh, soul music. And uh, I started thinking about this idea that here you had Michael Jackson with Thriller in 83. He comes out with Beat It. And that was all over the radio. But looking back on it now, the production had Eddie Van Halen playing guitar in it. And I, I'm curious, do you believe that that album-oriented rock directly influenced the production style of 80s R&B? Like, pr- like, like we got Prince, for example. Was that because AOR? And it's like, how do we get on the radio if, if, if they're just going to yeah, play Yeah, I mean, rock? the AOR, those artists, not necessarily the format, but the artists, uh, like Eddie Van Halen, were tremendous influences across the board. Maybe not as much in country, but certainly in, in R&B. And it wasn't the stations as much, again, as uh, the, the amazing artists 
that emerged out of that era. And, uh, you know, Quincy Jones, of course, was uh, monumentally important in uh, that, that era particularly. That era particularly in helping bring in uh, Eddie Van Halen. Uh, but I think the, the musical movement that emerged out of the uh, out of the late '60s and '70s influenced just a wide range of uh, music styles. But do you think? But do you think that they had to like Michael and Quincy had to bring in Eddie Van Halen to get that song on the radio because of AOR and because traditional R and B and soul was kind of boxed out. Yeah, I think there was so much genius involved in that production. Even without Eddie, it would have. Uh, would have been, you know, huge success. Eddie was just uh, a really nice touch, and uh, and a smart move. But I think you know that album was so great that even without Eddie, it would have been would have been as big as it was. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I don't. I seem to remember um, in the '80s that a lot of the R and B acts that were super popular that were on the radio had a little bit of that rock influence in them. And so oh, I just started definitely. thinking, I just started thinking, was that, uh, the cart before the horse? Like, what would, like, would it have, did they say, Hey, we need to have rock influence to get on the radio because of AOR. Or did they say, I want rock in it. And then it just so happened to fit the format. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think it was all a musical decision, uh, not a really a radio one. It's like, uh, yeah, we need we need that Van Halen guitar riff in there, <laughs> or we need uh, this kind of sound, or we need this, you know, badass organ in there, whatever. So I think it was just uh, the influence of the artists from the seventies more than uh, thinking, well, we got to have AOR radio. Yeah, when I mean, you mentioned disco earlier, did you was there an anti-disco movement? I know that some of your some of the stations you had consulted had just like destroyed disco records. Yeah, like, live uh, as a show of right uh, rebellion yeah, against it. I guess disco demolition thing. And uh, what we have found uh, among our fans was that they looked at disco as kind of the enemy for several reasons. One, rock and roll was all about festival seating where you jam your way up to the front of the concert, outdoor event, whereas disco was all about these clubs where if you didn't look right, you couldn't get in. Um, rock and roll was all about a sweating drummer and a, you know intense guitar player. Disco was very electronic. Mm -hmm. uh, rock and roll was about long hair and beards, and disco was very, you know, very well quaffed. Um, and uh, disco was uh, sort of like taking over and there was an element of the audience that thought well oh, we can't you know let's stand behind rock and roll and there was a disc jockey in Chicago who uh, started blowing up disco records on the air as a joke and then also as a joke um, decided to blow up disco records at Comiskey Park in Chicago and that that fueled this whole rebellion. Yeah. Um, but uh, the real reason uh, behind it was just how it was the, the disco culture was 180 degrees from the rock and roll culture. And some people were sort of offended by it and uh, thought it was a threat to the, the rock and roll and guitars and uh, long hair. And, and, you know, even drug wise, rock and roll was about uh, smoking tons of pot and drinking lots of beer and, you know, disco was very, um, you know, very cocaine. You know, mm -hmm. hey, I can't afford that that shit, man. You know, I'm gonna <laughs> give me a beer, and uh, so it was just uh, really a disc jockey taking advantage of uh, something that uh, the fans were thinking, and um, it got blown way out of proportion. But disco didn't go away. I mean, it, it you know was hugely successful. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of yeah, and sort of melded into what we know today as as EDM, so or electronic. Uh, yeah, exactly. How much longer do you think music-based radio stations can hold on? I mean, we've got Apple, we've got Spotify, we've got unlimited yeah. places to download music. Is, 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 this, is future, this done? The future is online. I think radio. You know, they have so many users users right now. That's not going to all of a sudden die, but I think a slow decline. And I think uh, even the radio experience 
will emerge on an Apple or an Amazon or some online source. Uh, Apple's even doing some radio stations. But I think the uh, the classic, well-done radio experience will not go away, but it just probably won't happen on FM. Yeah, it'll, it'll be it'll probably happen. Move to the cloud. I think you know Apple Music has a radio station, and I think they do a really good job. Um, and and they cut it up and they curate it. Yeah, well, yep, they do. Actually, they got I think four stations, and uh, yeah, they do well. And uh, but I think they're going to either they or somebody else is going to even take it further and create more great stations. And of course, satellite radio is not going away. That's uh, right continues to be popular and growing. I, I completely agree with that. And there's a lot of green space to do different things and try different formats now that it's moved to the cloud because the technology allows you to do different things. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, innovation and technology, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about and that I'm really most interested in is, is what is a news movie? And, and how ah. is it different from a, from a short, it kind of feels like a short form documentary but um, uh, it's not like Vice. Um, no, it's a twenty-four-seven uh, news idea, a news station, probably online, a streaming. Okay. Um, and uh, there's three characteristics of it. Uh, well, several characteristics. One is eye, ear, brain, and that's where it's visually stunning. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like a movie of the world at the moment, rather than a newscast. Uh, it doesn't have the two anchors chit-chatting with each other, but it's uh, movies, uh, so visually stunning. Then ear, where every story has a soundtrack. So if it's a story about, um, oh, I don't know, inner city strife, there might be Coltrane-type music. Or if it's a story about um, the Middle East, there might be Egyptian rap music. So mm -hmm. just a sound that takes it to a whole, elevates it to a whole level, new level of storytelling. And then brain, where it's not stupid. We have a thing we call the intellectual scale in television. If one is, you know, Honey Boo Boo or some goofy reality show, <laughs> and 10 is, you know, BBC Masterpiece Theater, yeah. um, News Movie resides at about a seven. Again, it's not elite, but it's just not stupid. Most news is in the three and four range. It's kind of dumbed down. And um, so... It's intellectual. It uses the eye, ear, and brain. It's electric. Uh, it's just very exciting. It matches sort of the beat of 2021. Uh, it completely blows up the news playbook, which is just one big cliche, right down to the slogans. You know, stations, first, best, most accurate. You know, it's just bullshit. Um, we actually call it high IQ, low BS, meaning it's intelligent, and devoid of BS and all those little uh, cliches and make up uh, local and cable news. So uh, news movie, again, is a, uh, a reimagination of uh, TV news. One way to look at it is to use the example we talked about earlier, whereas in 1970, 69, AM radio was dominant, but there was a whole new mainstream of Americans happening uh, and AM radio just wasn't part of that new mainstream. And FM came along, was part of it, and the rest is history. Now, uh, same thing. There's a whole new vibe in America, a whole new, new mainstream once again, new ways of thinking. And TV is just locked in the 80s. And it's like where AM radio was in the 60s, just not relevant, not, not tied into what's going on in, a, in American culture at the moment. And uh, so we think there's a, just like FM is a tremendous opportunity to uh, to get in sync with some uh, just wildly new programming in news. I watched a few of those samples on your website. And I, the thing that stuck out to me the most and what America, in my opinion, needs the most is the part where you say we're going to be we're going to give you the facts. The, the no BS part is to me is the most important thing. Oh. It's because because the, the trust factor, that the chasm that has been created in trust across this nation with news, I don't know if it can be repaired. No, I, think it's, I agree. It's too late. And it's uh, this news movie is also, for the first time, news program by programmers rather than old school journalists who just can't cut the cord with what they 
learned in journalism school and have been doing for the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, really needs that fresh approach. And the, um, the the balance is so important. I think it's uh, important to show both sides. Uh, you know, we joke that if it's a story about gun control, we'll have Ted Nugent talk. We'll also have, I don't know, Barbara <laughs> Streisand talk. And, uh, you know, you guys figure it out. Here's both sides. Because yeah. I noticed some stations uh, have tried to be even. And what they do is they just avoid the big sides, or the two sides, and they're just very vanilla and and happy news and uh, that ain't it you got to address them but evenly yeah i i I enjoyed the the ones you you did on drugs and the one you did in the middle east these samples that you can see on your website and we'll we'll get the website at the end it'll be linked in the show notes for the audience i like those how informational they were on one hand but then there's all this movement and things happening i think if i had to look at it i'd say the obstacle here is budget because the the key differentiator between what you see in a documentary or what you see on television news and a movie is basically the camera work and the camera movement and what a cinematographer for film would do versus what a producer would have a cameraman shoot in a newsroom. And so if you can get and, and hire top talent in cinematography, then you can do some really interesting pieces around. Absolutely. News it's, an, it's a very expensive project. And that's, uh, you know, that's critical. There'll be a lot of journalists involved. The real all-stars are going to be the motion designers and cinematographers and uh, people working in a uh, creative oasis that happens to be focused on news rather than an old school newsroom where uh, creative people are kind of pushed aside, you know, Cut the end, cut the weather intro, but get out of the way. This this news movie, it's a creative venture, hundred percent. I mean, just I'm, focusing on news. Yeah, I'm super excited to see where where that goes. Uh, Me too. <laughs> yeah, uh, you once said the sheep factor is everywhere in the entertainment business. Blind leading the blind, the oh, circle God. of average. Uh, is this what you're going to talk about in your new book, Solutions for a Creatively Starved? Yeah, planet? that's uh, and, definitely and, a, a big part of it. Because, yeah. I mean, it is, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, speaking of news, um, you know, there's one uh, new national news service that just launched, and they're just doing the same thing because it's got to be done that way. You know, it's just nonsense. And radio, you know, it's, every station sounds the same, coast to coast. And so that's going to be a big topic of, uh, you know, taking, stepping out and, uh, and you know, creating the, the next herd. I mean, is it your, is it your contention that even when someone's doing a really great job as an anchor, that because the format is common, that falls into the circle of average? Oh yeah. I just think, I think the fact, uh, Anchors are generally the whole anchor concept is pretty average. Uh, it's just I think the age of the anchor is over or becoming over uh, or being redefined, uh, just like the age of the disc jockey is uh, being redefined. Because uh, disc jockeys, you know, some are great. Howard Stern's great, and, uh, Harvey and Ghost Guys, but uh, most of them are just reading cards, you know, and. Uh, and you know they say, well, we're live. You know, yeah, barely. I mean, it's, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a matter of stepping out with new architectures, new designs, because we're in a new era, and uh, so many of the uh, media, the designs are just old. Ri- uh, the playbook was written in the '70s and '80s, and and here we are in 2021. And I again, I'm particularly sensitive to radio, which is still doing the same cliches they did 40 50 years ago if you want to hear and this is for the audience if you want to hear what lee's style of radio sounds like go to youtube and type in z-rock and uh, just click on the first thumbnail that comes up and you will hear just these edited together clips of z-rock jockeys and 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 they are really live i mean it is your heart will be racing in the first two or three minutes. You, you won't be able to help it. It's just fast and it's it's just energetic and, and the sound effects, the soundboard is just going bananas. It's, it's a really fun uh, listen. 
Yeah, that was a very, uh, in a good way, very disturbed radio station <laughs> aimed at metalheads. And, uh, you know, uh, we would do different approaches for different audiences. But for that time and that audience, it was great. I, I thought I thought it's like you never hear anything like that anymore. There's just no one's yeah. like you have to have that. That's about talent to me. That's about who is the person behind the microphone. Oh, and, yeah. And can they actually pull that off? That is that is like a symbiosis between a great producer and a great guy or gal behind the mic. Yeah, that, that's what that was. Uh, is there any other subjects you're going to touch on in, in the forthcoming book? Uh, uh, solutions for a creatively star planet. And, and are there any different type of subjects you're going to touch on in the documentary uh, Sonic Messengers? Yeah, the, on the documentary, uh, yeah, that's going to be just taking people on a trip through uh, the history of contemporary radio because uh, there was so much happening that radio was really part of, starting with the birth of Top 40 and Elvis and, uh, and the Platters and Coasters and all those early bands, through Beatlemania. Then there was the... Uh, the middle 60s with the Beach Boys and all that. Then the late 60s, the underground, you know, the Hendrixes emerged and underground radio started, album rock. Then there was the disco era. And then uh, we went into, you know, the Howard Stern morning show era. Now we're in the satellites and streaming. So um, mm -hmm. it's really just a, a, a time travel through these great eras and through the uh, filter of radio. Um and uh, as far as the book goes, it's going to be, you know, all the things, if you look at my website, all of the, the articles I've written there are kind of the general direction of it. Uh, and it's just, um, it's kind of a business book, but for, it's sort of like secrets from the creative side. You know, some MBA who just, our company needs to be creative. You know how? No. <laughs> well, here, read this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's been about 11 years in retrospect, looking back on it, do you think you were one of the first targets of cancel culture? Uh, that's interesting. I never really thought about it. Um, huh. I'll have to reserve judgment on that one. I haven't thought that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it because it was kind of heating up back then, but, but in a way that no one was paying attention to it. Um, and just to update the audience, what we're talking about, you work for a Tribune, massive company, and, um, and, and you just sent a funny email through the company from the Onion Network, is my understanding, and it was just <laughs> taken the wrong well, way. There's a, there's a whole history there. Um, when Sam Zell bought the company, uh, Randy Michaels was brought in as, pro, as uh, president. I was brought in as chief innovation officer and some other people. And boy, these uh, newspaper lifers hated it because we tried to make some major changes, which they needed. And we pointed out vulnerabilities and flaws in their, the way they operated. And uh, I would say 70% of the company thought, wow, this is kind of cool. You know, these guys are you know, going to help save us. 20% uh, were like, uh, I don't know what these guys are talking about. And 10% were, how dare these people get involved in our temple of journalistic excellence? <laughs> I mean, there it was, I remember one conversation I had, um, somebody said, uh, well, we are the, uh, you know, the, the uh, pinnacle of investigative journalism. And I just casually said, well, you know, 60 Minutes does a good job. That's not journalism. That's television garbage. <laughs> Sorry. I remember the time also, there was a, uh, a graphic designer who came to my office, sort of looked around, knocked quietly, come on in, and he laid out what he thought the, this is the Chicago Tribune, what the Chicago Tribune of the future could look like. And I thought it was amazing. It was brilliant. And I said, wow, have you presented this? Oh, God, no, I'd get fired if I presented it. So they were, um, there was this built-in uh, just arrogance uh, that I've never seen before. And I felt like the drummer and, you know, Metallica joining the, uh, you know, Chicago Symphony, uh, just square peg round hole. Right. And, uh, you know, it just uh, did not end well. And, yeah, that memo was interesting because uh, 
the Tribune was uh, printing and distributing and had a, a joint venture with Onion. So I thought, this is kind of an interesting. I'm throwing an Onion piece. Oh, and they just use that as an excuse. You know, this is horrible. This is terrible. How can this happen? Right. So it was a weird experience. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, they suffered. You know, I think we could have helped save them, but they're in terrible shape now. I mean, just like a lot of newspapers are. They're just, uh, again, self-inflicted in many respects. What are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career so far, and who did they come from? Well, let me think. Um, there's a guy named Buzz Bennett who was this uh, radical, radical. He looked like he was uh, he was kicked out of the Grateful Dead for looking too weird. <laughs> um, and he was just uh, very big on balancing science and emotion. Where things start emotionally, he didn't say it this way, but this is what he meant. Things start emotionally, then you use science to see if you're full of it or not. So that, that was a, I remember, uh, and uh, he also talked about um, going after the masses. I mean, uh, the real challenge is getting a lot of people liking you. And, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so get out of your own little head and think, you know, big picture. And, um, Let's see. Then there was uh, actually Chris Squire from the band Yes. He was all over me about, uh, you know, not accepting the status quo and moving forward. And, uh, you know, it's up to people like us to uh, to change things, to evolve things. And don't don't stand, don't sit still. And I mean, there are many others, but those two st uh, stood out. And a lot of it was from obser observations, just observing companies and people and the way they handle things. And um, I'm always, you know, intrigued by just greatness, whether it's even like the moon landing was just like, uh, wow, how did we do that? I mean, that, that's, <laughs> and also uh, spirituality, you know, it's more than a gig. There's sort of a higher calling to things you do that uh, really make an, inf an impact. So it's more than just money and, uh, and great press, but you know, there's, in a higher call, not, not a religious thing, but a, uh, some kind of higher calling or spiritual. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. Um, in, in my music days, we'd always call it bringing God into the room, you know, like, like giving yeah. yourself space to let that creative, whatever it is, come into the room. And so we, we wouldn't want interruptions. You know, we would want to just sort of sit in that creative space w with nothing on our mind, but the focus to create. And the worst Absolutely. thing you can be in the world is derivative intentionally and, and you you felt shame when you did it even if you were able to hide it from your contemporaries and colleagues you knew that you took something from somebody else that was that you you know that just made it not an original thought of your own and that kills right. you as an artist if, if if you are really uh, an artist that has any that's worth their salt i would say i agree yeah all these ideas and Thoughts gotta come from somewhere, and you know, let that somewhere in. That's that's exactly right. You've been around the block a few times, and you're building uh, a, a new path forward now. Uh, what are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making today? Uh, well, I would say the sheep factor, uh, just doing it because somebody else does it, and being really afraid, being fearful of. Uh, of stepping out because it might affect their, uh, you know, their bonus or you know, their whatever. So a fear is, is far and away the number one thing. Uh, and we have a line called AFDI, which means actually fucking doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where if you come up with an idea, do it. So many people, uh, you know, have good ideas, but again, they're afraid to execute them. Um, and also, uh, you know, the nonsense of, uh, of uh, mission statements. I mean, <laughs> if, if companies actually did what they said in their mission statement, the world would be a great place. I remember there was a station out in the uh, out West, TV station I went to, and they had a big plaque in their, behind the receptionist, and it was uh, their mission statement. We represent quality. We uh, 
you know, put the people first. We are leaders in uh, investigative journalism, all this. And I asked actually the sales manager, I said, that's interesting. Do you guys do that? Hell no. If we did that, we'd be number one. (laughs) And I see that in a lot of companies. You know, they have these great mission statements, but they don't AFDI. So I'd say fearlessness, AFDI, and, um, and balancing science and emotion. Where you can be scientific about things, but not not at the expense of creative emotion. I love all that stuff. Remember that I will. I've, I've written that down. It's going to be a little mantra. AFDI. I enjoy it. Oh, I yeah. Fucking do it. Uh, if you had a month to teach someone how to build a platform for themselves based on programming, you know, what would be the first three things you would look to to teach them? Uh, I would look to teach them uh, the ability to see the big picture, sort of getting out of your head and looking at you know the, the whatever your big picture is. Too many people just caught up in their own little uh, little world. Seeing the big picture, uh, also uh, mobilizing your ideas. It gets back to AFDI. Don't hold back. Uh, I think it's important to have a high creative batting average. What that means is you got 100 ideas and 30 of them work. Don't worry about the 70 of the other. It's like baseball. Got batter bats 100 times. I think it's 30 hits. He's an all-star. So, uh, you know, let your creative batting average climb. A lot of people are batting O-O-O because they're just not taking any any risks those 30 uh, ideas at work will probably offset the 70 that didn't um so i inspire a creative batting average uh, also uh let's see to uh look over the horizon uh you know to i think you have to understand the past to design the future but do go through the exercise of understanding what's already happened uh, particularly important in, in uh, radio, it's important to understand what happened during those golden days of radio. Why? Okay, now how can it be rethought for 2021? So, um, and I imagine the film people, same way. It's like you can learn a lot from 2001 and movies like that uh, about the possibilities. And uh, also, yeah, possibilities is important. Just, you know, see the possibilities and use your imagination and try to be exceptional just because again average may have used this line before but average sucks in this day and age of unbelievable competition you know you can't be average and succeed it's got to be spectacular in the past you could be pretty average and do well but not not anymore not with all the options out there you know this new age we're in yeah i remember uh having a um uh, well, I used to be in a singing group and my partner in the group, the guy who co-founded the group, he used to listen to old R&B records and he'd say, man, I would have killed back then because they didn't have to do any these vocal runs. And we were coming up in the time where, where Boys to Men was really popular and, and they had singers that just could do things you couldn't do. You know, and, and take yeah. six and they just had singers that could do things you couldn't do. And that just wasn't required in 50s R&B. You know, right. you Nat King Cole back then and you just needed to hold that one note in a really handsome way. Uh, now you had to really range up, come down the scale, go back up the scale. There are all these things you had to do. So you're right. As, as it progresses, the competition gets more difficult because we've seen that before. Oh, exactly. And we gotta just have really high standards, except nothing shorter. Well, Lee, I got to tell you, this has been a fun and illuminating conversation. I've learned a ton. <laughs> uh, you've been to the mountaintop of, of, of your industry. You co-founded XM with, with Kent Burkhart, and uh, you uh, helped Howard Stern get his career launched. You developed the way music was produced and radio was, was uh, presented. Uh, and now here you are. Uh, reinventing yourself again. Uh, you've got a documentary keep moving forward. That's right. <laughs> Life moves in one direction forward. You've got a book, a documentary, news movie. What do you want to get out of all this stuff? Uh, do you want it to replace the other legacy? Add to it? What's the end goal for you? Just look at it as evolution. I mean, what's happened happened. It was great, but uh, just a continuation. 
I love that. I'm yeah, here for keep it. Keep moving forward. And, and I will keep my ear to the ground on it. Um, tell everybody where they can find you on social media or on the internet, or maybe even see some of your work or some of the things from the past. Yeah, well, I have a website which has a lot of stuff, uh, and you can contact me through that because every page has a little thing that says contact, so feel free. And that website is uh, leeabramsmediavisions.com. That's L-E-E-A-B-R-A-M-S-M-E-D-I-A-V-I-S-I-O-N-S.com. Um, or you could put, yeah, that's, that's the easiest way. And uh, there's a ton of stuff there. I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Happy to uh, have friends and uh, connections there. And uh, anybody can email me anytime. Again, the best way is probably just to direct uh, press contact on my website. I'll get it and respond quickly. Beautiful. And I hope everyone listening does that. And we'll end on this. You, my friend, are an airport legend. What is your favorite airport story as you've traveled around the world? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a bunch of them. Um, probably when I, well, they're all, they're all, all scary ones, too, uh, <laughs> as far as being a passenger. Uh, one is uh, landing in Chicago, and uh, two cops immediately handcuffed me and say, bingo. It's coming off a flight from Miami, and they thought I was a member of some Puerto Rican Liberation Army. And uh, I could not convince them otherwise. And they took me into this private room, and I said, no, no. You know, I'm here, I'm a radio consultant working for WLUP Radio. I can call them. Well, we'll just do that. They called the station. The receptionist answered, who was part-time, and uh, they asked if I, if I worked there. And she said no, and she looked at the employee list, which I wasn't on because I was a consultant. They said, no, no such person. And then it really went downhill. <laughs> and uh, finally, I said, you, you, you can call a lawyer. I said, well, no, I'm going to call the manager of the station, which I fortunately had in my Rolodex or in my uh, thing. He vouched for me and came down and picked me up. And uh, But I was there for like six hours, and they were threatening, you know, it's like they were very threatening. A lot of stories like that. <laughs> what well, when you say it went downhill, just out of my own curiosity, how did it go downhill from there? Like, in what way did it go downhill? Oh, uh, script searches and uh, oh my really God. a lot of good cop, bad cop. Uh, you know, one guy, you know, you're going to fry for this, buddy, and the other guy, well, you'll get a fair trial. This is America, but it's going to be one hell of a trial. And so, and uh, we know about the bombings and <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, the organization was, I think, FALN or something like that, which was briefly you know, some organization. But I guess I looked Puerto Rican or something, but they thought I was the guy coming in that flight from Miami. And uh, so that's uh, that's the kind of scary stories I have from the airport. The t- fly, t- I just fly myself. So flying myself, there's some separate scary stories, but those are more uh, just bad weather and things. Yeah, which is also equally terrifying. That that story is hilarious. It sounds like a, a nightmare version of a Seinfeld episode, and yeah, uh, that's you know point, yeah. where where maybe Jerry goes down and gets too good of a tan in Miami, and then comes back and <laughs> <laughs> things things turn sideways. Very Lee, Seinfeld, yes. Uh, I, I I really have to thank you for that. I appreciate you sharing. Uh, the stories and, and the great candor and uh, please stay in touch. Like I said, there's so much that we could talk about. We definitely can do a round two. Love to. Fantastic. I'll talk to you soon. Best of luck. I know you don't need it. And um, <laughs> I, I hope to be in touch soon with you until round two. Sounds great. Thank you. Take care, Lee. Be good. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It, and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click contribute. 
contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.